The reason for that is we did not finish the handout from last week, so uh, you still have plenty of time on that. And so if you did not get last week's handout, there are a few more copies, I think, on the back table, and that is dealing with the pre-tribulational rapture. <clears throat> and so we spent some time last week, and we kind of ended with uh, the imminency uh, of His return and uh, talked about several passages of Scripture that dealt with uh, watching, um, uh, for his coming, and again, if uh, if it was not a pre-tribulational rapture, if it happened in the middle or towards the end, <clears throat> we would not be commanded by God to be watchful, to be sober, um, to be living in a particular way with expectation, not knowing when his coming is going to be. So uh, we use the word imminent, uh, or the uh, the imminent return of Christ, that he could come at any moment. Uh, and so again, that's one of the other Great proofs, if there's not already been enough given in Scripture, which we've seen plenty to give proof of a pre-tribulational rapture already, but as if that wasn't enough, just the imminent return of Christ is reason enough to believe that He's coming before the tribulation uh, begins. And then uh, we dealt with um, the uh, idea that, um, uh, let's see, do I have that in here? We dealt with the idea that in order for the Antichrist to appear, the Holy Spirit has to be taken away. We, we spoke on that the other day, and um, use, where the word let, he that let, uh, now lets, is, um, and letteth is going to have to be removed before that uh, man of sin um, be revealed. And so the Antichrist cannot come on the scene until the Holy Spirit is removed from this place. And, uh, of course, we know that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in us, which we have of God. And so, again, uh, the, whole, the Antichrist comes on the scene at the beginning of the tribulation period, and therefore the Holy Spirit will not be here, meaning that we as God's children who have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us will not be here. Again, another proof for a pre-tribulation rapture. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter number 3. Revelation, Revelation chapter number 3, and uh, let's look at a, at a verse in verse number 10 that I think is, is very clear as well. Um, and this is, uh, toward, Lord willing, we're going to be dealing uh, with the seven churches here, uh, maybe even as early as tonight. We'll start on that. Um, and this is right after uh, John writes about those seven churches. In chapter 3 and verse number 10, he says, Because thou hast kept... The word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them, notice this, that dwell upon the earth. And so uh, we will not, those that are saved, and we're going to look at that a little bit when we deal with the seven churches, those that are saved are not going to have to be here for that. And only those that are left on the earth are going to go through the things that happen from this point forward in the book of Revelation uh, from chapter 3 and verse number 10. Um, let's also look at uh, chapter number 6 and verse number 10 for a moment. Chapter number 6 and verse number 10. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them? Notice again the phrase, that dwell on the earth. Again, we're not going to be here for that. So again, we're not going to be part of that judgment. Uh, chapter number 8 and verse number 13. Chapter number 8 of Revelation, and verse number 13, again, just a page or two over. 
And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And again, we find that this is what throughout the book of Revelation is given as the people that will have to endure this, that will have to go through this, these folks that are upon the earth. Um, let's look in chapter number uh, 17. And uh, there's another reference there. In chapter 13, I'll let you look that up on your own, but for sake of time, let's go on to Revelation chapter 17 and look at verse number 2. Revelation chapter 17 and verse number 2. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And again, dealing with the inhabitants of the earth. And then let's look down lastly at verse number 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names, notice this, were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not, yet is. And so again, it is a time for those that have rejected Christ. Their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. It is a time of wrath for those that did not trust Christ as their Savior. Uh, so again, there's just multiple proofs. I, I mentioned that when we started on the pre-tribulation rapture, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture because it's what the Bible teaches. And you really have to twist Scripture. You have to look for a way to make it say something other than a pre-tribulation rapture. Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1, back a few books. Uh, right before the book of Hebrews, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1. And uh, let's go to verse number 9, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And let's look at verse number 9. For they, uh, let's, back, I'm gonna, let's back up to... Uh, Oh, listen, Paul, Paul just writes these huge, long, run-on sentences. All right. Um, well, we'll just start in verse 9. That'll be fine. For, you can go back and read from verse 1. That would be a good thing for you to do to get the context of it. I promise we're not taking it out of context, okay? For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So, again, we're dealing here with Christians. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us, notice this, from the wrath to come. And so we wait for Jesus. What does that mean? That means the return of Jesus, who hath delivered us from the wrath to come. I, I don't know of a verse of Scripture anywhere in its entirety that is so direct talking about a pre-tribulational coming of the Lord Jesus Christ before the wrath is given and poured out on the world. And so again, First Thessalonians chapter number nine, uh, one and verses nine and ten, uh, is a great, great passage. If you're ever talking with someone uh, and trying to show them about this, uh, you can take them to that passage, and that alone would be enough and be sufficient. Again, chapter number five of First Thessalonians, verse number nine: <clears throat> For God hath not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the fact that we are not here uh, to endure the wrath of God during the tribulation period. 
Um, here we go. Second Thessalonians chapter two is what I was uh, thinking of a few moments ago and couldn't get the passage uh, to come to mind. Second Thessalonians chapter number two. We're going to begin in verse number one. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word, uh, nor by letter as from us, as that day of Christ is at hand. Now, let me explain why Paul is writing this. Paul had dealt with the rapture, if you'll remember, in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. He dealt with it very, very clearly. What happened was, after that letter, some people in the church at Thessalonica began to say, it's already happened. It's already here, and now we are in this other time to come. It prompted Paul to write this second letter. To set, uh, to set this down for these folks and say, listen, it hasn't happened yet. And this is what he's dealing with. So it gives you a little bit of background, a little bit of context to chapter 2 as we read it. Okay, So let's start with verse number 2 again. That ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come uh, a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called uh, God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So the day that, uh, that, that Paul was speaking of to the uh, church at Thessalonica said, not going to come. Uh, it's not here yet. Because, again, one of the marks of that day coming is going to be uh, the, the appearance of Antichrist. He goes on to say this, verse number 5, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now you know what withholdeth that, uh, now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So again, we have plenty of proofs that God is uh, coming in a pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, you'll see a list on the back of your uh, uh, page here, and I'm not going to turn to each of the passages. I'll leave that for you to do as a self-study. Uh, but again, there are multiple, multiple passages of Scripture. I'm just going to run down through what these passages teach. Uh, just to read them off the list here. But everyone who has this hope uh, fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Um, um, you have to read that passage. I'm not sure what that was referring to. I wrote these notes to trigger a thought that I had at the time, and that one didn't trigger the thought, so I apologize. But uh, 1 Corinthians 15 urges watchfulness and faithfulness. Again, pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 deals with encouraging patient waiting. Patient waiting. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, ex expectation and looking for. Uh, also found in Philippians, Titus, and Hebrews. Philippians chapter number 4, that when we consider the pre-tribulational rapture, it promotes us living godly causes us to live daily as much as like Christ as we possibly can because we don't know that today could be the day. First uh, Thessalonians chapter number 2, it brings forth labor. It motivates us to serve the Lord, again, because we believe He comes at any time. 
by knowing this pre-tribulational rapture and understanding it, First Thessalonians chapter number 4, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. And so it gives us comfort. It urges us to steadfastness. Second Thessalonians, First Timothy, and First Peter. It infuses diligence and activity, causes us to be fervent, to do some things, to be busy, promotes the mortification of the flesh, uh, dying to self. Uh, it requires soberness, requires soberness, and uh, contributes to us abiding with Christ. Maybe our spiritual walk is motivated by this. Um, if you'll find in the book of James that it helps us to be patient in trials, knowing that we have something far greater coming. And some of the martyrs were great examples of this. They were patient in suffering. And um, then also to enforce obedience and cause us to say, I want to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are numerous passages of Scripture that deal with all of these things that every single one of them point to the rapture happening at the beginning of the tribulation period. So if you have your large, your, your first time chart that I gave out to you, uh, you'll find that uh, God has dealt with uh, the nation of Israel from the time that He gave the prophecy to Daniel. He has dealt with the nation of Israel for 69 of the prophetic weeks that He prophesied there would be 70 of. And uh, even in giving the weeks to Daniel... He even broke those 70 weeks down into periods of time as seven years, which was the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and then an additional 62 weeks, which was from the end of the rebuilding of Jerusalem until the Lord came into uh, Jerusalem as the uh, king. And as uh, on the Palm Sunday, there was the other 62 weeks. And then there's a pause in that 70 weeks. And for the last 2,000-plus years, he's been dealing not with Israel but with the church. Israel rejected the Messiah, and uh, he has put Israel on hold. He has not, uh, he has not rejected them and said they're no longer his people. Uh, he's going to be the, the entire end times as we deal with the rapture and the tribulation period. That whole period of time, God is dealing primarily with the nation of Israel. It all centers around them, and uh, he's going to bring his people back again. And uh, this is a major, major part of uh, the last week of the 70th uh, week. And so that's kind of where we're at. And uh, so let's go now, if you will, to Revelation 1. Revelation 1. And we're going to go ahead and begin tonight dealing with the book of Revelation and uh, with several diversions into some of the other prophets. But uh, primarily use Revelation to anchor our study. All right? I'm going to begin in verse number 4, because we have already dealt with verses 1 to 3 at the very beginning of our study. Uh, verse number 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. So again, he's dealing here with seven literal churches. Again, one of the great things we need to understand in studying prophecy is when it's possible to take it literally, you take it literally. There, if the plain sense makes perfect sense, seek no other sense. Uh, the literal things are literal. Uh, the symbolic things are symbolic. And uh, you've got to make sure that you understand when each of those are. It's usually, usually, throughout, even in Revelation, it's usually pretty clear uh, by the context of what you're reading. 
sometimes it's even specifically stated. Um, but most of the time, it's not too difficult to distinguish when it is literal and when it is figurative. <coughs> so he's writing here to seven churches. We know they're literal churches because he, first of all, tells us where they're located. They're located in Asia. And he's going to name them by name. And that, that's very, very specific. So he's writing to the seven churches in Asia. He says, Grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So we're speaking here of the Lord Jesus Christ. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So John is writing to the seven churches what Christ has given to him to give to them. Behold, verse 7, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Now, I don't know how that's going to work. Uh... But uh, if he's going to come in the eastern sky and every eye is going to see him, uh, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? Uh, it kind of gives me an idea that Christ might be uh, omnipresent, perhaps, maybe. Uh, but he's going to be everywhere. Every eye is going to be able to see him. And they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. If there's ever any indication of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, we certainly find it here. He was from the beginning. He was till the end. Uh, he is without beginning and end. And uh, He is Almighty. I, John, verse number 9, who also am your brother and companion, in tribulation, not dealing with the great tribulation that's to come, but the tribulations that at that time the New Testament church, uh, early churches were, were going through. Uh, companion in tribulation. Uh, John was uh, exiled to the Isle of Patmos for his faith. He was the only one of the apostles who died of natural causes. Uh, they had tried to martyr him earlier on. It didn't work. He lived through it. They finally exiled him to the Isle of Patmos, and he certainly knew what it was to go through tribulation. And he says, I, John, who am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet. Pretty good hint of a, um, of a rapture taking place, wasn't it? And we're going to look a little bit more at that later on in verse, we get to uh, chapter number 3, and uh, chapter number 4, I believe. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, here are the churches. I've got them listed on this timeline. If you want to look at the picture up here, and if you don't have one of those, I think we have some more on the back table there. But these are the seven churches that he writes to. Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, 
And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, only one of Him, and it's capitalized Son. We're dealing here with the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. So again, we have a description of what He looks like. His head and His hairs were white. Now here, I want you, if you will, to circle this next word, like. Okay? It doesn't say that His hair was wool. It says it was white like wool. When we see the word like, and in a couple more words, you're going to see the word as, and then you're going to see the word as again, and then you're going to see the word as again. When you see like and as, it's John trying to do the best he can to describe something that is indescribable. He's trying to take something that is known and familiar and saying, I don't know how to say it other than it looks like this. This is what it looks like. And so as he gets to this, he says in verse number 14, His hair was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flaming fire, his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. So you can see this, this brilliance, the glory, if you will, of God. We, we see time and time again, don't we, in the Old Testament, uh, when God did make appearances of the Shekinah glory. You remember that? Uh, when uh, the Mount of Transfiguration happened and the brilliance and the brightness of those figures. Uh, when you have the Lord coming in, in uh, for the very first time, coming into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies with His presence, and the Shekinah glory, the Bible says, of God filled the temple, uh, the ta tabernacle, and later the temple as they uh, built that, and He came into that place. Uh, again, He was leading them by uh, a pillar of fire at night, I believe much, very much so, His presence, his, his divine glory being shown there. When Moses met with Him on Mount Sinai, and he longed to see the, uh, God, and God said, No man hath seen God and live. And uh, he finally said he would let Moses uh, go into a cleft in the rock, and he would put his hand over him to shadow him from it, and he would pass by and allow Moses not to see him, but to see his hinder parts, just the fringe of his glory. And even just that, that brief contact with God was so great that Moses had to wear a veil for a number of days afterwards. People couldn't even look upon him. It's amazing how many times when angels come to uh, bring messages to folks during the Scriptures, how they talk about them coming in uh, shining apparel and white apparel. I cannot prove this from Scripture, but I believe when Adam and Eve were uh, created in the image of God, that they had the glory of God on them, and that the reason they did not know that they were naked until they sinned was they were clothed with the glory of God. And that when they sinned, God's presence departed and they were no longer clothed with His glory. I believe that we'll be clothed with His glory once again one of these days soon. And uh, what a wonderful thing to be that close to the presence of Almighty God. I can't prove that from Scripture, but it is an interesting thing to think about. And um, so we find <coughs> that His countenance was as the sun in verse number 16. Uh, I'm sorry, let's back up verse number 15. His feet like unto the fine brass, and they burned in the furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. So a pretty, pretty forceful voice, all right? Uh, probably loud, probably full. Uh, very amazing. 
Again, indescribable is really what John is saying. I'm doing the best I can is what he's saying. But really, I can't describe him as accurately as what I've seen. And uh, verse number 16, And he had in his right hand seven stars. Now out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? You say, well, what does that mean? Well, John said this in, in John chapter number 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, doesn't it? The Bible says that the Bible is sharper than any two-edged sword, isn't it? Piercing even the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And so it makes sense that he would have a sharp two-edged sword. What is that? That's the words of God Himself. And so out of His mouth comes this sharp two-edged sword, the Word of God itself. And His countenance was as the sun shineth in His strength. Can you look at the sun? I'll tell you, I've tried to a few times. And uh, probably the reason I have to wear glasses now. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do. It's brilliance is so bright. You know, and John is doing the best he can here. And, and can I say this? That what John describes here is not what God looks like. It's just the closest John can come to it. And, and, and he gets so amazed by this stuff, it's beyond words. He does the best he can to describe it. And if, if that's the, one of the things that we can consider, uh, could you imagine the first moment that we step into heaven and get to see God for the very first time? Oh, man, I can't wait. I just can't wait. Looking forward to it. Verse 16, He had in His right hand seven stars, and out of His mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was the sun, as the sun shineth in His strength. And when He saw Him, when I saw Him, take note of this, if you will, when I saw Him, I what? Fell at His feet as dead. You check me out in Scripture. Anytime a, an angel or God came and appeared to man in, a, in an earthly form, and they understood and knew who he was. You do not find him like some of these preachers out here on television that see God and are buddy-buddy with him. The thing I find when men in the Scripture see God or see the Lord Jesus Christ in his deity, it only shows them their unbelievable depraved nature and sinful condition to the place where they do not even feel that they could stand in his presence. By the way, we can't. And aren't we glad that the Lord Jesus Christ makes it possible for you and I to call this wonderful, wonderful God Father. To do what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, to come boldly to His throne. To a God that every other man we see of in Scripture has to bow in His presence. Can I encourage us in this? There ought to be a spirit of worship in each one, each one of our hearts. I, I don't like when people refer to my God as, as the man upstairs or the good old boy or, or uh, the, the big man or the guy up there. Can I tell you this? He is not those things. He is a holy, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipowerful God. And He is certainly certainly not only demanding of, but worthy of our praise and our worship. And John, the Bible says, falls down and acts as, and is, as though he's dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Again, some people would maybe try to argue that Christ was not 
deity and say that all this was talking about God the Father. But Jesus is the one that was dead and now lives again. So we understand who is speaking here, do we not? He's the one that's in the midst of the golden candlesticks here. Now, a lot of people wonder, well, what are these stars and what are these candlesticks? We have our first indication of something that is symbolic, all right? And uh, the good thing is, John's going to help us out with it. Well, let me put it this way. God's going to help us out with it because he's going to tell John what these things are. He says, Write these things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and uh, of, uh, even gold, uh, the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this for a moment because in chapter number 2 we're going to begin with the letters. Uh, the angels of the church, uh, these seven churches, um, what are they? Again, it's important for us to understand and to know that we do, when we come to Scripture, we, we take a, a word and we study every usage it has throughout the Bible. There are times it's used in one manner and sometimes it is used in another manner. Now, some people will strongly say and strongly argue that this is dealing with angelic messengers uh, from heaven, angelic beings. Uh, my personal take on this, and if you disagree with me on it, that's fine. Uh, my personal take on this is that, and I, I believe there are many folks that also uh, hold to this, is that these angels that are being referred to are being referred to as the pastors or the leaders of these churches. Now, it does not mean that I'm some angelic being. I'm a man just like everybody else. But you can call me Angel Greg. No, I'm just kidding. Do not do that. Do not do that. Okay, I'm, God's going to get me for that one. Lord, I am sorry. I did not mean to make light of that. Because this is a serious matter. It really is. Uh, the term angel can be used in a number of different ways and is used in a number of different ways in Scripture, a couple of different ways at least. One of them, obviously, is to refer to uh, angelic beings. Other times it deals with the one that delivers the message from God. And uh, in this context, I believe it's speaking of this. You say, well, what gives you reason to believe that? Is it because you're a pastor and you want that? No, that's not the case. The reason is John is writing a letter to the angels of the churches from Christ. That may strike you a little bit odd if they are an angelic messenger of God from heaven, because why would God go through John to write them a letter? Secondly, he criticizes the angels of the churches in these, uh, of these churches and tells them where they are wrong. And I do not see an angelic being being wrong in these cases. So I think there's a pretty strong argument, an easily uh, defined case here, that these are speaking of the pastors or the bishops uh, the leaders of the New Testament churches at the time, these seven churches. The candlesticks, obviously, he, he makes very clear here in, in uh, the last verse there of chapter 1. He says, The candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now, it's hard to really have to discuss that one because it's pretty clear, okay? So we've, we've come across and gotten full understanding, I believe, at this point with our first set of symbolisms that we have to understand from Scripture. Wasn't that easy? So let's hope the rest of the revelation goes that way, okay? It's good when God tells us what they all mean and, and signifies them. All right, let's take a quick uh, moment to begin. We'll just begin 
with the uh, church at Ephesus. Now, um, I do want to make one, one... In fact, I may just do this and end, and then we'll start the, the church at Ephesus next week. Well, you're going to find... A, uh, you're going to find a particular statement used a number of times in dealing with these churches. And uh, the phrase that is used uh, uh, several times throughout this is, He that overcometh. He that overcometh. And I want to try to deal with this at the onset so we don't have to deal with it in each of the churches as it gets to this point. A lot of people say, well, that's talking about somebody who lives the victorious Christian life and by their works, uh, they're able to succeed and, and overcome these things. That I do not believe is what it refers to, and I'll tell you why as we get into the churches and you see how it is used. Um, because it talks about he that overcometh will, uh, will uh, they'll have uh, uh, inherit the, the uh, everlasting life and, and these types of things. And if you're not careful, if you think that he that overcometh is dealing with how we work or how we live, you would get the doctrine of works salvation from it. And so anytime we know that our understanding is not in agreement with the rest of Scripture, then our understanding is what's wrong, not the book, okay? So you say, well, what does that mean then, he that overcometh? Well, uh, hold your place here for a minute, and let's look in 1 John chapter number 5. 1 John chapter number 5, and we're going to take a look and see if Scripture maybe can help us on this. Uh, I like it when Scripture answers our questions, don't you? Rather than Brother Greg, because I know Brother Greg, he's wrong a lot. So let's let the Bible answer that, okay? Let's look in First John chapter number 5, and let's look in verse number, uh, verse number 4. The Bible says, For whatsoever is what? Born of God, what's the next word here? Overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith, all right? Um, those that are born of God are referred to here as overcomers. They're referred to as those that overcome. Um, notice, you say, well, is that the only uh, passage of Scripture that deals with this? Uh, there are different places, I believe, that lend itself uh, to this particular thought. Uh, when we get to verse number 5, he, uh, who is he that overcometh the world? And again, look at what it says here. But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, taking these passages... And then looking at the context of Revelation 3, uh, two, chapters 2 and 3, uh, as we get into the seven letters of the seven churches, it makes perfect sense. And so if we can show from Scripture that there is the possibility of uh, he that overcometh, meaning those that are saved, then we don't have any problems or issues with what it says to these seven churches. Only if we take it as he that overcometh, being someone that... Uh, overcomes by his own effort, his own works, his own life, his own perseverance, and that sort of thing. So I, I wanted to try to help with that. Um, and then I want to just make a few general uh, statements here. Uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that. Let's go ahead and read uh, just the first part of Ephesus, and we'll start dealing with a couple things here. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus. So again, who's he writing to here? Who's, who is when, when God is dictating this to John, who is he writing the letter to? Is he writing it to the church at Ephesus? No, he's not. He's writing it to who? The angel of the church at Ephesus. Right? So it says here, unto the angel 
of the church of Ephesus, write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, chapter 1, we saw him standing or in the midst of the golden candlesticks. Here, John expounds on that a little bit. says he walks in the midst of them. And can I tell you this? I believe that we see that God is very active in his church. Uh, sometimes I think people get the idea that uh, we need as a church body and pastor gets up and he preaches a sermon. No, God works in and through his local church. And these specific churches, God is active among them. He's not, he's not some observer somewhere way off watching these things. He's involved in them, which is why he's writing these letters. He's saying, look, there's some things you all are doing wrong, and I need you to do them right. Let's see what he says here. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, it's always a troublesome thing when God gives you a lot of compliments and then He says, Nevertheless, <laughs> you don't always like seeing what comes after that. I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. And you're going to find a common structure to these letters. You're going to find God give some indication of who He is to the church. At the top of each letter, you're going to see this. He's going to indicate himself different ways to different churches. He's going to commend the church for the things that they're doing right, if there are any. <laughs> he's going to rebuke them for what they are doing wrong. And then he's going to instruct them on how to do it right, how to correct it. And then he'll have a message or a challenge for them at the very end. And he uses that same pattern over and over and over and over again. On your timeline, I, I did the churches the way they are with columns, so you guys can write some of these things in there if you'd like to. Uh, you have to write kind of small because there's a lot of them and some of them. But it gives you the opportunity to write some of these. So I want you to think about those structures as we do it. Um, notice it says this in verse number uh, 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick. What's the candlestick? The church. Right? Out of his place, except thou repent. In other words, God was saying, look, if y'all don't get this thing straightened up, there won't be a church here at Ephesus. I'm going to remove it. I'm going to put it somewhere else where I can make use of it. But this thou hast, he does something a little unusual in this letter in that he comes back and gives them another commendation. He says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which, also, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh. There's that phrase, isn't it? So who is he speaking of here? Speaking of Christians. Will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God? No, no uh, conflict of Scripture there when we understand that phrase. He that overcometh. So, very important that we understand that. Um, next week we'll pick up here. We're going to talk a little bit about, a little bit more about the church at Ephesus. But uh, your homework for the week, if you want to do some further study, is look into who the Nicolaitans were. What are we referring to here? 
You're going to find two churches they're mentioned in. One is in Ephesus, and they do not tolerate the Nicolaitans. The other one is in Pergamos, and they do tolerate the Nicolaitans. Uh, so must be a pretty important factor if God mentions them twice to these churches. So uh, you can take some time maybe this week and do some study, learn a little bit about the Nicolaitans, where they came from, who they were, what they believed, what they uh, taught, and uh, we'll pick up there next week. All right? Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it as we delve into these pages. Uh, help us to teach it clearly. Help us to understand it clearly. And, Father, may your Holy Spirit guide and direct us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.